You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, good morning. Well, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3 this morning. Uh, We're continuing in our series, Malachi, God's Answer to Our Wayward Hearts. And some of you may be wondering, wait, weren't we going through the book of Ephesians? Why are we in Malachi? And you'd be right to wonder that. As a preaching team, we decided to take a short break from our series in Ephesians to study a book in the Old Testament. And as Pastor Dalton shared when we started this series, it is in the book of Malachi where we see many truths, ideas, and commands that the Apostle Paul pointed out to the people of God in the church in Ephesus in the New Testament and how they were previously experienced by the people of God in the Old Testament and how they point to the necessity of Jesus redeeming sinful humanity. For God's unchanging promise of our redemption was made long before Ephesians and, as we'll see today, before Malachi. So we're going to read from God's word here. We'll be in Malachi chapter 3. Please follow along as I read. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the prophet of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them. 
A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. How in it we see that you will deal with our sin, but you will not abandon us on the journey. You promise to redeem us as a remnant for yourself. Even though the grass withers and the flower fades, God, your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, we ask you for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you've probably heard it said, change is hard. I know I said that the other day to my wife, Rachel, as we looked around at our almost empty apartment. We had just finished moving to a new apartment, and I was coming to grips that after four years of living in our old space, we will never live there again. And that was a hard change for me to swallow. We can all agree that life is full of changes, so many of which are hard and many are way harder than moving. Receiving a sharp pay cut at work is a hard change. Picking up the pieces of a broken marriage is a hard change. Mourning the loss of a loved one is a hard change. But life is also full of good changes, like when you receive a promotion at work or you get married or you welcome your new child into the world. What unites the good changes and the hard is they both change us. As simple and as obvious as that sounds, it has inevitable implications for how we live. Our world is constantly changing and we are changing with it. And all of us, whether we realize it or not, identify constants in the change. Those things or relationships we look to to help make sense of it all and all this change. And for the Christian, the God of the Bible is our greatest constant because he was, is, and always will be consistent. God himself does not change and is sovereign over change. We see that in verse 6 of our passage. This is what we call the doctrine of immutability, God's quality of never changing and always being consistent. And that's good news for us because it means God's promises do not change either. What he promises to do, he will do. Can we say the same about God's people? Can we say the same about ourselves? We also see in our passage that the people are inconsistent in following God and his ways. In verse 7, they have turned aside from his laws and have not kept them, which exposes their robbing and other wayward living in verse 8. And it's hard that we live as people who change how we think and feel about one thing to the next. Sometimes we treat our relationship with God like that one gym or or restaurant we love for a while before we change over to the next one. And our inconsistent affections often come at the expense of others. We change our minds about giving to a noble charity, which hurts their cause. Or we change our minds about spending time with a friend, which hurts the friendship. But God remains consistent in his affections for humanity. The change of being refined and purified in verse 3 
is the hardest change the Christian will ever go through. Just as the change of being consumed will be the hardest for the non-Christian. But for the former, this change is also the greatest because it is exactly what we need to be the people who consistently love God and each other. And it is the greatest because we do not do it alone or by our own strength. We have our greatest constant by our side, Jesus, the one who never changed in his love for us because he is our unchangeable, our immutable, and our consistent God. And so our main point this morning is God's consistency gives hope to inconsistent people. God's consistency gives hope to inconsistent people. And in order for us to see just how hopeful this message is, we first need to see how we are inconsistent. And then second, we need to see that God is consistent. And from there, we can have hope that because God is consistent, we do not have to be consumed. And that will serve as our final point this morning. So let's start by seeing how God's people are inconsistent and how we are too. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. It's here we see the people's continued track record of questioning God. And to be clear, it's not wrong to ask God questions, but it is wrong that the people are doing it from a heart of hypocrisy. Their words are hard against him. And they're saying at least two things to God. They're saying, God, you're treating the bad guys like the good guys, and you're sitting in heaven doing nothing when you should come and judge the wicked. The people wanted God to strike down the wicked like the good old days. But here's the catch. It's not that the people were consumed with worshiping God. They weren't. They were consumed with just wanting their problems to go away. We know this because back in verse 8, they were robbing God and, and withholding their contributions to him. That was their expression of worshiping him during that time, and they weren't doing it. We also know God's people were also accusing him of just turning a blind eye to sin when they themselves turned aside from his commands. So how surprised the people must have been when God granted their request and promised to come near to them for judgment in verse 5. God's people had a chronic case of foot-in-the-mouth disease. They had the gift of knowing exactly what was wrong with the world. And it was simple. The problem was always someone else. They never thought that asking God to fix things might entail God fixing them. This exposes their inconsistent worship. The people wanted their circumstances to change so long as they themselves did not have to change because they refused to worship the one who had the power to make those changes for them. If we're being honest with ourselves, we do that to God too. We say to God, we're too busy, too bored. We don't have enough money. We're not appreciated. We don't like our church our friend group stinks. We don't look good, don't feel good. We're too skinny, too fat, too short, too tall. Our clothes are worn out. Our car is too small. We're single and we wish we were married. We're married and we wish we had kids. We have kids and we wish we could be single again. We want God to change this or that about our lives, but do we really want him to change us? And we want the world's biggest problems like human suffering, evil, and injustice to change. So long as the suffering, evil, and injustice we inflict on others doesn't change. 
we moan and groan because deep down we're actually worshiping ourselves rather than our God who promises to change us and change our world according to his ways and not ours. All this exposes our inconsistent worship. Let's see this through the eyes of Ren, a consultant for a healthcare company. Ren would be the first to say, I'm too busy in the list of complaints I mentioned earlier. She's too busy with work and feels the anxiety of being too busy for friends, fun, or even just rest. And Ren knows there are good pathways to create margin to do those things, like clocking out after business hours or not coming in on Saturdays when it's not necessary. In fact, Ren tried to be consistent at doing those healthy things to create margin. She tried and tried, and then one business day ended, and she worked an extra hour. And the next day ended, and she stayed at the office longer. Work lingered on her mind Friday night, so Saturday arose to her back at the grind. It just felt like there was always too much to do with too little time. And deep down, Ren felt more purpose and prestige in what she did than in the friendships she'd done away with. No time management app could help Ren follow through on the change she initially wanted. And it seemed futile to even try. I mean, her coworkers seemed to be better off than her, and they have even less margin. They seem to not only go unscathed, but are happy with ditching people for greater positions of prominence. It's not long before life for Ren looks like life for God's people. Only for them, it was about maintaining the necessary margin for God. But we all have the same heart, don't we? We are consistent at being inconsistent. But through Malachi, God is calling his people, and he's calling us today back to consistent worship of him. And this consistency is marked by patience in spite of our problems and confidence in the one who shows us how he is working all things, including the hard things, according to his good purpose. When we are assured that God is working toward peace and justice and love, we are freed to do, as Philippians 2 says, everything without grumbling or complaining. Because God is working out his plan of redeeming humanity to himself, and he has never been inconsistent in doing so. So even though we are inconsistent, we can be confident that God is consistent. And what better place to see the promises of God at work than verses 10 through 12. In response to the people being cursed for leaving God and stealing from him on their way out, God calls them to test him in verse 10. Now, normally in the Bible, testing God expresses unbelief, okay? It's a bad idea. But here we actually see testing proves God is true to his word, which produces consistency in one's faith, even if it seems foolish on the front end. And here's what I mean. Amidst dire economic straits, God calls his people to to loosen their ancient versions of, of their wallets or their Venmo accounts and stop clenching their fists of stinginess so that he might shower them with blessings beyond their capacity to spend or save or just to know what to do with. And his gift is likely rainfall given the biblical context, but also so much more. Indeed, everything that watered soil can produce would be theirs. And you'd be right to think, this is great news. God is consistent in promising to provide for his people when they show their commitment to him. But you also might be thinking the next four words, why should I care? 
Well, you should care because verses 10 through 12 are are couched here between the people's defensiveness in verse 8 and their complaints in verse 13. The people probably wondered who would be included in the no more need in verse 10. And if their hearts are anything like what we learned in verse 13, the people would actually have difficulty in doing this for God if it meant that he would bless the many. Remember, they were the ones who said evildoers prosper and they put God to the test and escape. And so it's here in Malachi 3 that the people do not love that God is consistent. And sometimes we don't either. We don't love that he is consistently generous to those we think deserve scarcity or that he is merciful to those we think deserve condemnation. We don't always love that God is consistently all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, all-just, all-merciful, all-good, all-gracious, all-kind, all-holy, all-eternal, all-powerful, all-infinite, just all-in-all. God's consistency is great news, but we don't always love it. And we deserve to be cursed with a curse in verse 9 for not loving him. But instead, we get showered with the gospel. 400 years after Malachi was written, Jesus endured a life of poverty, which culminated in his absolute deprivation on the cross, his violent and complete loss of life, which is the total opposite of no more need. Yet because Jesus is God in Malachi, he is that same God who showers them with those blessings. It is in his resurrection from the dead that we share every spiritual blessing and his rightful inheritance of the new heavens and new earth. And in verses 11 and 12, we get to see that foretaste, that picture of the new heaven and new earth, the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the picture God has promised to follow through on since the beginning of the Bible. It has always been his plan to destroy the devourer, and has, it has always been his plan to do away with our hardships too. God always promised to position his people to the happiest place that they would be, a place that is recognized by all the nations of the world as blessed. And as part of these covenant promises, what does God ask the people to do? One word, remember. That word is perfect after everything we've learned so far today, isn't it? Remember. Because yet another thing our inconsistent hearts show is that we struggle to remember. But God has made a way for us to remember. It's right here, your Bible. And the heading in most of our Bibles literally says the book of remembrance. It is here in verse 16 where we see a remnant of God's people, those whom God has promised will be consistent to him to the end. These people come to know God for who he really is. He is present with them and attentive to their needs. And he hears us today. God hears our questions and he pays attention to our thoughts. He calls us to confess and repent our sins to him, not because he is a, a worship monger, uh, but because he has always wanted us and we are unconditionally his, we see in verse 17. As a result of worshiping God, the people's names are written in his scroll, which is a record for all those who walk in faithfulness before him. And while this moment has significant meaning at the end of our Bibles in Revelation, it also had present significance for them in that present time and for us today. Gathering with other followers of God to remember who we are because of God 
is a really important rhythm for the people of God. And we do this with his book. So when we launch our home groups in the fall, this is exactly the rhythm we will continue, worshiping God by reading his word. But you don't have to wait for the fall to do this. It's really easy to start now. You don't need anyone to even preach or teach necessarily. You just need to listen. Listen to God in his word. Listen to the scriptures and then talk about what you have heard with others with you. This is what God's people have always done. They remember their story and who they are because of what God says about them in his word. And something else happens when you hear God's word with other people. And it's not always that feeling of rest or refreshment. Gathering around God's word with people from different walks of life and discussing hard things in the Bible can be challenging. But something we can always count on happening is it is refining for our souls. And this act of remembering and doing it together points to our greater refinement still. The hope that because God is consistent, we can be refined and purified like gold and silver. Because God is consistent, we do not have to be consumed. We now come to that great day of the Lord moment in our passage. This time in in Malachi's future and in ours when Jesus will return in the most glorious way possible. And where our questions about evil and suffering are answered. Where God breaks into history to do away with them. And to make all things right and good once and for all. For, For us to grasp this intensely bright future, we need to remember our past. We see in verses 1 through 5 a prophecy that is key in getting this whole day coming. A prophecy that was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. He was the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, sent to prepare the way for Jesus. For we see in the Gospels, John preached repentance of sin and baptized in the name of God, paving the way for Jesus in his first coming, paving the way for the life-changing message of the gospel and the establishment of the church. But the messenger who comes suddenly to the temple is Jesus in his second coming when he appears in that power and might. It can be easy to miss that. And upon his return, Jesus will purify the sons of Levi. So those priests who failed to live by the Old Testament would themselves be cleansed from their sin through the blood of Christ. And then from there, they will be able to offer offerings in righteousness because it is the righteousness of Christ given to them and to us today through faith. Thankfully, Jesus isn't coming just for judgment here. He comes to refine. We see he comes to make covenant keepers out of covenant breakers. He comes to hammer the sword out on the anvil that he might see his reflection in it because godliness comes only through the refiner's fire. River City Church, if we want holiness, if we want God's presence, if we are to be worshipers, then it will mean hardship and rebuke because I, for one, need a lot of pounding and a lot of fire before I'm going to shine. Will your good deeds stand before the day of judgment? Will your awards, will your accomplishments stand? No, only those who have been through the flames will be able to stand the day of of the Lord. Our redemption story looks downright brutal sometimes, but that should cause us to see the brutality of our sin and the extent to which God goes to redeem us. 
because God labors on our wayward heart, showing us that he does the best work on us. We who are more valuable to him than the most precious metals. While we see quite the list of those being judged in verse five, it is clear who are the redeemed and who will be annihilated. The sorcerers, the adulterers, the liars, the oppressors, why are they judged? Well, it's because of what they've done to the oppressed, but even more so, I think it's because that at the very end of that verse, it says they do not fear the Lord. The socioeconomic statuses of Malachi's time cannot hide who the judged are. They don't love God and they don't love people and so they won't be saved. I recently met with a friend who was telling me about his interest in the Titanic and its final voyage. And here's what I learned. When the Titanic set sail in April of 1912, there were people aboard the ship grouped into several different classes, ranging from those high up in the luxury suites to those enjoying the views from the middle deck to those down below keeping the propellers running. However, after the tragedy took place, the rescuing ships posted a notice with a list of all the names of the people who were on the ship. But this time, there were only two classes that the people were grouped into, those known to be saved and those known to be lost. And here's why I share this. When you are at the end of your life, it does not matter who you are, what you have done, or where you have been. In the end, it all boils down to this. You are either saved or you're lost. You either follow Jesus or you don't. And as a result, you are either changed by the gospel or you are consumed by judgment. And my hope this morning is that you would be in that first group, that you would believe in Jesus and be saved. Because Jesus is consistent, we do not have to be consumed. Maybe you walked into this room this morning and you've been following Jesus for a little bit or maybe a long time, but you are discouraged by the perceived lack of change toward godliness in your life. And I think we've all felt discouraged by this. We wonder, if God isn't changing me, does that mean he's given up on me? Let me confront that lie that creeps into our hearts with this very real hope. Because God is consistent, it means he isn't going to start a work in you one day and then scrap that work the next. Because God is consistent, it means he isn't going to love you one day and then not love you the next. Because God is consistent, it means he isn't going to call you his treasured possession one day and then call you garbage the next. God's consistency is the security we need for our insecurities. His consistency is the refinement we need for our righteousness. And his consistency is the hope we need for our inconsistencies. You've heard it said, change is hard. And our culture even has a diagnosis for this. We call it change fatigue. It is a problem facing us everywhere in a world of competing changes that we chase after. Our bodies and our minds were not built for this. And so we feel the fatigue. But God's consistency is the only good news we have because the rest of who he is is so good. As humans, we inherently need order. God gives us that. We need stability. We get that from God too. When change comes, we feel overwhelmed. Our ability to adapt becomes depleted and the loss of control and uncertainty skyrocket. We're fatigued by it all, but God meets us in this. And not only does he meet us, but he carries us through to our destiny because God's consistency gives hope to inconsistent people.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.